0: Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 21, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, GMO expert and third-generation Iowa family farmer Howard Vlieger steps into the studio with me, along with Kathleen Halal, a mom with American moms across the country here, on behalf of the similar cause about ag approaches that affect All of us, not just a few, but everybody. And they're in the studio with me while Howard Vlieger is soaking up all the love in a SoCal tour to post us on the latest in agricultural research and the oldest in practices. Back to the future, folks, in other words. So later on the show is Gavin Cameron Webb, guest director at UCI, presenting the next two weeks' run of Tony Kushner's Angels in America at UCI's Robert Cohen Theater. We'll cover the art and the messages and remind you about the available tickets. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thank you, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Howard Vlieger and accompanying him, Kathleen Halal, her, his miner on his tour here in Southern California. Howard's put down the farm tools to lecture around the Southland with his messages about sustainable agriculture and the recent research practices associated with genetically modified organisms, heretofore referred to as GMOs. Howard, for the last 25 years, has been a student of the soil, crop nutrition advisor, and educator of farmers, researchers, speaking out about the effects of GMOs and glyphosate. We'll talk about that. It's, um, we Most of us know it as Roundup, the, the weed killer. In 1992, Howard founded two companies, to help family farmers reduce their dependency on chemicals and collaborates with scientists around the world for sustainable solutions. He currently is a member of the Board of Directors member for the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance and the Council for Healthy Food Systems. He joins me along with Kathleen Halal as he continues on his tour around Southern California. Welcome to the show, Howard and Kathleen.
1: Thank you and and appreciate you having us here this morning.
0: First, tell us about, Howard, when you first were familiarizing yourself with genetically engineered products on your farm, you started noticing the downside when the claims of higher yields were not bearing fruit, so to speak.
1: Yes, well, we began studying the promises of genetically engineered crops, GMOs, and looking at how they were made and approached it from an objective viewpoint and when we conducted the first on-farm research in 1997 we saw that the claims that were being made were not being fulfilled and then the subsequent observation that we continue to do as we move forward in the years of progression of more and more of this coming into the food and feed supply we saw a consistent trend in the problems in production livestock relative to when genetically engineered grain was in the feed supply for the animals.
0: Well, let's break it down. The industry has made many claims about uh, how GMOs address global hunger, more food is produced higher nutritional levels, higher yields, greater drought tolerance, yet your research has found outcomes contrary to those claims. Can you unpackage that for us? Because we that's what we hear. That's the mainstay in the mainstream media. So if you could break down what you found in those claims. That you've talked about already. You were at the, we'll talk about where Howard can be heard uh, on his circuit, but last night for his first in the Southern California area was at Mother's Market in Costa Mesa. So you taught us a lot last night about what uh, those claims, what they're actually showing in some very vivid detail.
1: Well, and it isn't just what we experienced and witnessed on our farm in the side by side comparisons, it's all from different parts of the country and around the world. the claims that they make that they are increasing yield have never been verified by an independent third party. And there are numerous examples in the early years when our land-grant universities were able to compare the conventional version of a hybrid and the genetically modified version of the same hybrid that they yielded less. And that occurred for about the first five years, I would say, And then as we move forward in the progression of the language on the technology agreements that came with the genetically engineered seed, and that agreement was written by the patent holder of that genetically engineered seed, they no longer allowed anyone to research and compare a genetically engineered crop to the natural version.
0: And you also you talked about the claim about nutrition that uh, it was uh, claimed that the the golden rice genetically modified strain was going to give us a higher vitamin A content. And you mentioned last night, sure, if you're willing to chow down how many pounds of rice to get to that higher level nutrition?
1: Well, the vitamin A. The objective that they claim to have in the golden rice is being one of their poster childs of yes, we're going to. Improved nutrient content. And the the, the final outcome of the product is you had to consume over 20 pounds of rice to get the vitamin A levels that they said you needed in a day's time.
0: So we don't it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out you're going to have that glycemic load of all that rice and if if one can afford it or you can get that if it's available in the marketplace just to get that vitamin supplement. So it's it's not a very realistic kind of a claim.
1: Consume your greens and you'll you'll have your vitamin A covered.
0: Okay, right. Well, and about the drought tolerance, what are you finding about that? You had some interesting slides that you showed about over time the genetically modified engineered farm produce was having a different success with the irrigation or lack of it.
1: Scientific research has proven that when you have a glyphosate-resistant hybrid and you apply the glyphosate herbicide to it, that you will be required to have more than twice as much water to raise the same amount of crop. So that's just the opposite of their claims of the drought tolerance. There is drought tolerance bred into hybrids, but it's through traditional, conventional, hybrid breeding programs that they are accomplishing this. And the genetic insertions do not come close to comparing with that traditional breeding program.
0: So that's those are some different facets of the production that's really important for us to watch. We saw the debate with Prop 37, and we heard some of these things, so it's really important that we um, follow it up with achieving greater literacy in um, agricultural practices today. Well, the, um, another interesting thing you pointed out in your talk, and we're, there's so much for Howard Vlieger to cover, Throughout the touring circuit, I'm not exactly stealing any thunder here, but I just thought for listeners' benefit who can't go to uh, the talks, that the costs that the farmer incurs are actually quite, uh, it's tr- threefold. There's there's the cost for seeds, there's the technology fees, and then the seed treatment expenses. Can you explain how all that works and how that impacts the food producers?
1: Since the introduction of the genetically engineered crops, the overall input cost has increased for the farmer. And as time has gone forward, we see those increased prices continuing to grow significantly. The one example I shared was with the cotton, where we have, by 2010, we have over a tenfold increase in the price of the cotton seed per bag compared to what it was in 1993.
0: Okay, so those of you who just joined us here on Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine, we're speaking with Howard Vlieger, and also in Studio A is Kathleen Halal, uh, affiliated with the Moms Across com that will uh, you'll hear a little bit more about uh, today. I don't know, Kathleen, if you had—you could tell us uh, how you were motivated to— uh, join on with this group, and we're gonna. We'll hear a a little bit as we talk about the lecture circuit, what, where people can continue on. But what motivated you? What piece of this news uh, brought you in on this whole uh, initiative?
2: Well, I'm a mother of three boys who have a special kind of autoimmune issue, and this issue does not run in my side of the family nor my husband's side of the family. So it was really a mystery where it came from. We were lucky to find the right neurologist to help us treat this condition, um, but I was unhappy with all the medicine that the children were having to take. And What uh, kind
0: of medicine, if it's all right to mention? Michelle. Antibiotics. Oh, well, that's not too benign after a while.
2: Antibiotics. But some of the children that have uh, my children's condition end up also on SSRIs as well as antibiotics, and it's, it's really not healthy. But those are the lucky ones. Those are the ones that get the correct diagnosis. Uh, My children's condition is called PANDAS or PANS, and it's Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. And it's very hard to diagnose because it looks behavioral. It looks like, uh, in some kids, Tourette's, anorexia, ADHD, OCD, ODD, and anxiety. Also, there are some signs of depression. So a lot of these kids are sent down the road to take psychiatric drugs, which never get to the root of the problem. It's actually an autoimmune condition. It's a, it's a cousin to rheumatic fever. But rather than attacking the heart valve or the kidneys, um, the antibodies attack the brain, which is why it looks behavioral on the outside. And the thing with these kids is it's an alternative autoimmune response to an infection, so, say a child has a strep infection, which in many cases is, is at the root of what's going on. They will not have any fever, any sore throat, throat swabs will be negative. They will have no outward signs that there's an infection going on, but they're having this alternative reaction that looks behavioral. So it just looks as though your child took a left turn and, and can't function anymore or has whatever, whatever symptom is going on. Uh, the physical tics are, can be really distracting. Some children have extreme tics, so they can't go to school anymore. But um, these children get onto antibiotics, and or their tonsils are removed, and the instru- the infection is cleared, and the behavioral symptoms go away. We spent thousands of dollars with experts before we got to the root of that.
0: Experts in this area, or did you have to go out of the area?
2: Uh, we we did go to UCI. Um, they didn't know what it was, and we went to many many uh, prominent. So prominent you got? Doctors. Did you get your
0: answers at UCI? Or did you have to go beyond that?
2: In the end, we got our answers uh, from a dyslexia therapist because. Uh, our son, we knew, had the cognitive cognitive function going on in his mind. He had strong ideas, but he couldn't write them down. His handwriting got really bad. So we took him to a dyslexia therapist, and we told her our story. And she said, you know, it could be this condition called PANDAS. And we went to a couple of ENTs and verified it, and we took out their tonsils and put them on antibiotics. And, and this, the, worst, the worst of it happened to our oldest son. And uh, he was better. He's, he's better now. He's, a, he's on a roll, and he's happy and healthy, and everything's great. But thank goodness we figured that out, that it was not a psychological condition. It was actually uh, strep. So um, after we figured that out, I um, started looking into nutrition as a way to bolster their immune system and their health so that I could give them less medicine. And um, I went to a talk by Howard Vlieger just prior to Prop 37, and I was just floored. I just fell off my chair. When I heard everything he was saying in terms of the health effects on the animals, autoimmune issues and so on, I put it all together and um, I became a proponent for, for labeling GMO foods because families like ours need to be careful what they're feeding their children and when I discovered what's in GMOs, that GMOs are pretty much, in my view, a vehicle for pesticide. And so I wanted to feed my children a cleaner diet And um, so I supported labeling. I thought that was my right to know what was in my food. And I was a proponent. And when it didn't pass, I was at um, a party over at Mother's Market in Costa Mesa in the parking lot. And there was this one mother who also has three boys and she was crying because it looked like it wasn't passing. And I just told her, I said, don't give up. I said, this is raising awareness. People oh, will yeah. now ask about what GMOs are. It's been a secret all this time, and so together with her, Zen Honeycutt, we became friends and co-founded Moms Cross America. And last summer, we had 173 parades nationwide, with people holding banners and marching in the parade, saying, "We have a right to know what's in our food," and and asking for labeling. And this summer, we're shooting for 400 parades. Our organization is growing and growing. Um, on our strongest weeks, we've had 300 people on our, or 300,000 people on our Facebook page. And we have so many moms that are sending in letters and saying, you know, it's true for us, too. Uh, my child had autism or, or, or asthma or all these conditions. Even as adults, they're writing in and they're saying, we went off GMOs and the health conditions went away. And so we are encouraged and we are growing. And, and that is why uh, we're here supporting speakers like Howard who will explain to people technically exactly what GMOs are. We are not anti-science. We are not even anti, you know, biotech. We are just anti-pesticide in our children's food.
0: Well, I, when we're talking about uh, in the absence of labeling, um, I wanted to find out from you, Howard, is one uh, hedging our bet um, possible from buying directly from producers in farmers markets, I'm not that I'm trying to plug that, but I'm just wondering if uh, I guess you you can know your producer if you're going to a farmers market. But is that helping with some uh, overcome the absence of labels? If there is in fact a connection with uh, in the public health and the agricultural practices,
1: knowing your producer and knowing your producer, knowing about producing the food <laughs> is very important and. Thankfully, many of the people that will be at the farmer's markets are aware of the issues with GMOs and they avoid, at all cost, GMOs. Purchasing non-GMO seed and planting that, there are certain crops that will be susceptible to drift from genetically engineered crops that may be raised in the region. But there are many things we can do to mitigate that. But you must start with the non-GMO seed.
0: Okay. And I, I actually, I noticed that farmers markets are also a, a good source of information for what other uh, other stands practices are. I find out a lot when I get to know my producer, they know about each other and I can uh, make some intelligent decisions about which stands to support and uh, what I'm putting in my mouth there. Some, some might be using some unscrupulous method to maybe hang the fruit on the the, the plant longer for a certain an outcome and that's that not at all a benign practice.
1: The thing that's important in producing food is focusing on the production practices that give you an energy dense final fruit product that is free of the chemical residues.
0: Okay. Well, about um, the weed killer that was introduced. This is uh, glyph- glyphosate was. Um, introduced in 1974. And those impacts have been uh, now uh, there. There's different ways we can have an impact, have that impact on us. There's first, there's, uh, it's the direct, the plant that's affected by it. There's the dust that's suspended from the uh, the application of said um, products. And then there's um, actually uh, where it's this bioaccumulation can or this accumulation is in the water stream. So, can, uh, what have you found from, for instance, the the dust that's uh, you talked about crop drift, but it's it's also it's drifting um, and not into onto other pro- produce being uh, cultivated, but it's it's in the, it's suspended in the larger sort of atmosphere, and you're finding for people abutting, or and perhaps there are other locations where this crop dust is showing up in the in uh, the fungus, the fungicides, or the the fungus among us, there uh, among other kinds of impacts. Can you talk to us about that?
1: Well, in the <clears throat> the reference you're making to glyphosate, which is the active chemical ingredient in Roundup herbicide and many other generic versions of that Roundup, which are they're non-selective. In other words, they're designed to kill everything they touch, and it has been scientifically documented that glyphosate is very detrimental to the beneficial microorganisms in the soil. When the good bugs in the ground are either diminished in number or completely wiped out in some cases, that allows the opportunistic or the bad organisms to grow. That causes the increase in the fungal and other bad diseases for the crops, and it's those opportunistic organisms causing the crop disease that generates the mold and mycotoxin that you're referring to in the example we showed on the dust samples. And the as the continuation of the use of the glyphosate-tolerant crops continues year after year after year, these diseases continue to get more prevalent and require more fungicide and insecticide and other types of pesticides to be applied to raise the genetically engineered crops, which is exactly the opposite of one of the industry claims that says, oh, well, we're going to reduce pesticide use with genetically engineered crops. And there's no secret that this has not happened. It's been scientifically documented in a number of papers.
0: So people are are, you're seeing what we're allowed a two parts per million, uh, distrib- or then became 40 parts per million with a 400 parts per million, thank you, Kathleen, uh, over not one application per season, but uh, maybe up to four applications per season. So it's, it's just ramping up.
1: Well, and you're referring to the tolerance level that the EPA allows of glyphosate residue to be in the various grains that go into the food supply. In the beginning, the tolerance level was a tenth of a part per million for soybeans, for example. They raised that to 20 parts per million in the first increase, which was in 1997. In some of the grain that is the, the glyphosate residue of, as of the 1st of May of 2013 was raised up to 40 parts per million. And in some of the forage crops, which that would be a silage or a halage crop, that would be fed to livestock, that residue level is up to 400 parts per million. It has been scientifically documented that it only takes a tenth of a part per million of glyphosate residue to damage beneficial organisms in the digestive tract of mammals. That includes animals that are raised for food and people.
0: So there's a whole lot of ways to approach that. One is integrated pest management that some of us sort of uh, lay people are familiar with. That, that goes by the wayside. So you're sort of ramping up all the kinds of so, so-called interventions in not any longer conventional agriculture, but genetically uh, engineered agriculture. And then we're talking about the uh, autoimmune Possibilities that are kicking in from not only the animals' guts that need treatment, and you showed us the whole cycle of uh, how producers are compensating uh, all along the way with uh, the intervention of these project products that uh, that lead to not a very uh, not, not a benign outcome in the whole circle of production. Um, so I. I I want to qu- I want to pair in two different things here. First is that, that you you'll talk about on your lecture circuit, uh, you'll show us the uptick of the use of glyphosates uh, throughout uh, American agriculture, and you talk about the increased incidence of diabetes and autism and uh, uh, lots of autoimmune uh, s- sorts related uh, pathologies. And I I just want to make sure that listeners and uh, those that are on the lecture circuit, when you're talking about that, that uh, I'm I'm concerned about there's a correlation, but I think there's so many factors that are going on. The same food producer or the, the ones that are uh, whose portfolio includes the chemicals used in the genetically engineered um, production are also those that are hyper producing the fast foods that are also feeding this whole diabetic uptick so i think they're they're i'm implicating all of them but i'm not implicating just the um, the the genetically engineered products themselves so it, that's something i'm bring. so and i really need to race into the the Forums that are available to people throughout the Southland. For those of you that are in the Northridge area tonight, there will be at the Chabad there uh, a talk. And Donna Miller at 818-765-1939. She's available for questions um, on that no- the Northridge uh, venue. And then uh, tomorrow, Irvine Unified School District will have at the PTA meeting at the IUSD office from 10 till Okay, let's let Kathleen bring that one up. That,
2: that meeting is only for PTA presidents.
0: Speak right in there. Yeah. That meeting is only for PTA members
2: and parents from Irvine. So you're welcome to come if you're a parent of an Irvine child.
0: Exactly. Well, there's a few of them that are listening. Yes. Thinking, hello, those parents again. So, And they can all take those messages back to their respective networks and pass that on. Then on January 31st, is that an open... Forum at Laguna Woods Community Talk. Absolutely, That's yes. in the evening Absolutely. from 6 until 9, and we all know that Laguna Woods, uh, that's the former Leisure World, um, at tw- 24351 El Toro Road, and the number to call is 949-597-4200. Then, uh, we've had a guest, as a guest, uh, the the director, founder of the Ecology Center, San Juan Capistrano, they're uh, going to be hosting on February 2nd from Three thirty to 4 30 in the afternoon and that is open to the public yes, and i imagine you want to make reservations there folks that's such a lovely setting number to call is 949-443-4223 and i'm going to race through the book I, list
2: i just want to
0: add yes speak, speak right in
2: information at momsacrossamerica.com or moms across america facebook page we have uh, howard's tour posted he's leaving tomorrow to go up to northern california and throughout southern oregon And then he'll be
0: back. And he'll be back then. Okay. And so the required reading for those who are sufficiently riveted to their speaker here about what to find out more, because it's not game over with the unsuccessful bid with Prop 37. You can continue to become more literate and more effective in your community in making connections cause-effect connections with all of these inputs in the agriculture that affects everybody. There's Seeds of Destruction, Uncertain Peril, Our Stolen Future, America's Two-Headed Pig, and The Unhealthy Truth, and if Howard has any more authors, he'll give me those and I can post them. I want to thank Howard before we sign off completely.
1: Well, I want to thank you for having us, and, and uh sure encourage folks to, whether they're able to attend one of the events or not, start your own education process relative to what's happening with this fundamental change in the food supply and this experiment that's everybody's involved in that they really didn't sign up for, and that's the genetically engineered food grain in the food supply. Kathleen?
2: i just like to say that I think that all of us need to pay attention to what's going on with our children. They're coming up with all kinds of uh, health conditions that the medical community is untrained in treating. they are new conditions and You know, the statistics are are frightening. One in three children has what is referred to as the four A's, asthma, autism, autoimmune, or ADHD. I think as a a society, we need to look at what could be causing this, and this has all skyrocketed since the mid-'90s since the GMOs came onto the scene. We are not saying that the only factor is GMOs as mothers, but we're saying that it's probably a big part of it because children that get off of GMOs and go on organic diets are showing improvements in their health.
0: So I think one of the other takeaways was that uh, it's important to keep working with our federal representatives who are uh, in a position to mandate regulatory oversight and levels approved of any of these kinds of substances that are being introduced in the name of agriculture. This is a quick wrap-up from Howard.
1: We need to have independent control of that regulatory oversight instead of industry control, which is the case now.
0: And uh, there's so much to say too. Where the industry has sufficiently gagged a lot of uh, uh, land grant universities from sort of speaking out against, uh, speaking up to, uh, to, speaking to power as something. It reminds me of how the the firearms industry has dictated what the National Institutes of Health can talk about gun violence. Sort of that the speech gets gagged and we don't get near the information that we're due. So there's so many levels on which we can all be activated. Uh, Better informed and um, see through it, and I, I think with with Kathleen's point, I would hope that we're doing it for not just the youngest demographic, but they're they're the ones that are most at risk. But um, I think everybody's sufficiently exposed to these things that are, I have a stake in this. So, Howard Vlieger, uh, I want to thank you for your time today. I know it's you're it's at the sacrifice of running your farm in. Northwestern Iowa and that you come to us in the Southland to send the message, spread the message about what we can do, what we can find out more about and Kathleen Halal on your good luck with your Moms Across America Venture and thank you both for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, for everybody, for staying with us. That was Bill Frasell's The Tractor. I hope you enjoyed that. Back on Ask a Leader, we have our second guest here. This is Gavin Cameron Webb. He is the guest director. He's joining me in the studio today. He's ramping up his rehearsal schedule leading up to opening night on Saturday of Angels in America. He is the former artistic director of the Studio Arena Theater in Buffalo, New York and the Boston Shakespeare Company. He's currently a freelance director. His recent work includes Richard III, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Pride and Prejudice, Dial M for Murder, and he's taught at the Juilliard School and SUNY Purchase, the Film Academy in Vienna, and most recently at Indiana University. His work has been seen at the McCart Theater, the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, the Virginia Shakespeare Festival, the Clarence Brown Theater, the Gay Va, I hope that's right, the uh, Syracuse Stage, the Capitol Repertory Company, the Kansas City Repertoire, and on and on and on. He's served as an auditor for the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York State Council on the Arts. He's a member of, I'm not sure what the SDC and the the AEA are.
3: Uh, one's Actors' Equity Association, and the other is the Stage Directors' uh, Union.
0: Okay. And so he joins us, as I say, today in studio. A. welcome Gavin to the
3: show. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: As While we talk, folks, about this play, there are no spoiler alerts. Playwright Tony Kushner manages to pack a lot of lines he's given his character, so we're no danger of giving anything away. We're here to make sure that everyone makes the most of it, in fact. So Angels in America, written in the, or completed over the early 1990s, it was a workshop in L.A., and then it was complete as a play later on. Uh, It's known as the Gay Fantasia on national themes. It's broken down into two parts, uh, which are separately presentable, uh, entitled Millennium Approaches and Perestroika, respectively. So the Millennium Approaches is going to be the portion that you will be presenting at UCI.
3: That's right, yes. Yes.
0: Okay, and so, Gavin, what a play. It's like uh, to know a play, to step in it, and then direct it amidst so many interesting and challenging logistics. How has it been putting it together?
3: Oh, it's been a wonderful time. It's, uh, it's such a gift to be able to do this play because it's, it's one of the best American plays of the 20th century, I think. Uh, stands by itself, Millennium Approaches. Uh, which uh, is about three hours long, as is Perestroika. This is a big, big play. It's an epic play told in intimate scenes. It's set during the age crisis in the mid-1980s, and it was uh, w- what what excited me first about it when I saw it in its uh, in its New York production on Broadway uh, was that it uh, was the first. State of the Nation play that I'd seen about the United States.
0: It is a marvel, and I, I'm, I can, it's palpable that, um, and it's. I don't think you're. It's any obsequious line to say how much it means to you to be able to to be presenting this maximal play.
3: Oh yes, um, I, I lived, I was living in New York through the AIDS crisis in the nineteen eighties. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's very personal in a sense to me. Oh. Uh, but because
0: the, the theater was a large part of where. Uh, largely sort of re- representing the, uh, the gay demographic. So you you saw it the, the theater blackened in so many places. Uh,
3: yes, I did. Um, all my friends from uh, undergraduate school died during that crisis.
0: Imagine. Um, oh, my goodness.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult time to recall. It's still very powerful emotionally to recall that time uh, when the plague was about. But what Kushner's play does is magnify that crisis and uh, lend, uh, give it a whole landscape, a whole context that is very, very American. He has put into the play uh, such iconic figures as Roy Cohn, who who was and was for many, many, many years a major uh, power broker uh, too many administrations. Of course, he was the uh, attorney for the McCarthy hearings in the 1950s, uh, and he never went away. He was uh, a real fixer during the Reagan administration of the 1980s. And uh, he was also the uh, one of the leading attorneys in the Ethel Rosenberg trials back earlier in the century. Um, and he—he he's, a, he's an, uh, an amazing figure, um, and, of course, the the irony of all that is that uh, he died of AIDS himself, and that's represented in the play.
0: The closeted figure mm-hmm. with the uh, beyond— the homophobic closeted figure. With uh, outsized clout. So that, yeah. that dichotomy is the brilliance of Tony Kushner's for sure. Well, and, and you bring out some of those characters now. That I, I'm thinking everybody has an opportunity to take away so many different themes here. Everybody has a different— uh, relationship to the history. Some people aren't going to even know about Roy Cohn, so I don't know. Right. Pa- partly with the program, there may be a summary, so uh, the Although, newer patrons can get a little a yes. leg up there.
3: Yeah, there are extensive dramaturgical notes in the program, in the playbill, okay, uh, well, giving the- background to Roy Cohn and, and other figures Ethel, mentioned, and uh, Ethel Rosenberg as right. well, yeah.
0: Oh, wow. So everybody has a different knowledge, and, they, and I think everybody, because of how densely written the play is, everybody's going to hear different pieces delivered by each of the characters. So um, how do you want the audience, what do you want them to take away from the production here in 2014?
3: I, that's a very interesting question. Okay. Um, well, let me... What I, want, what I would like the audience to take away, Kushner's writing is tremendously optimistic. Um, He he seems to believe in this epic play that when the chips are down, we will all pull together. Um, I myself am not not so sure of this uh, 20 years on or so. And uh, Kushner himself has said in recent interviews that we're in a much worse and darker place now in 2013, 2014, than he was in, we were in 1991.
0: Well, maybe do you think that the advent of AZT as a, a an, an AIDS treatment was a kind of um, a, a, a breakthrough that helped him be more optimistic in terms of uh, the public health standpoint?
3: No, I, th- I think um, it's, it's larger than that. They have the promise of the, uh, uh, the Berlin Wall coming down, okay. the Soviet Union uh, going away as a major, uh, the Cold War vanishing. Uh, the prospect of of a bright future um, at that time. And, of course, we've seen what's happened to that. Um, as far as AIDS, the AIDS uh, treatments are concerned, of course, they're a lot more better now than they ever were in the mid-1980s. In the mid-1980s, if you were, if you were diagnosed with AIDS, it was a death sentence. Uh, it is no longer a death sentence, but the epidemic continues in astonishing proportions through, all it, over the world.
0: Some, some places it gains in terms of uh, in certain populations that didn't consider themselves vulnerable, oh, yeah. uh, like the elder yeah. population, or, um, and in where the, the political culture wars are playing out, where um, closeting, forcing gays to be closeted again has an impact on public health there. We've covered that in many different ways on Indeed Ask we a Leader.
3: Have. Indeed, we have. But also, the play, the play is prescient, I think. In, in two aspects in that, okay. that, that I don't know that Kushner could ever have uh, imagined. One is global warming. There's a character in the play yes. Harper who's obsessed with the destruction of the ozone layer over Antarctica. And this was written in the 1980s. It is now 2014. And what have we done, really, about global warming? Besides regress. getting worse. <laughs> right. Worse and worse. Record temperatures now in Australia are... Uh, forcing what the Australian Open tennis tournament, for example, to cancel matches, um, and we're, we're not even addressing this. So it's uh, the, the destruction it's, of our planet. And, could- and the other thing that uh, that he's put into the play that that has suddenly blossomed is this emphasis uh, is an emphasis on Mormons. Uh, and who would have known? This was way before Book of Mormon was written, or perhaps even conceived. And of course, way before the uh, Romney candidacy, presidential candidacy. Candidacy. And you,
0: you mentioned the uh, global climate change, and it, what a what an interesting kind of a, a play on um, themes is the agrophobic Mormon wife is also is concerned about the the opening of the ozone layer. Yes. So it's sorry, what a twist. Kushner is brilliant. Yeah, it's and so the, there's. So many things. Not everybody's going to take away the same thing as I said because it's so, so much material that he packs in there.
3: Well, there is. And I, and I don't want to give the impression that the play is, you know, a heavily loaded intellectual uh, piece. It could it be. It is so human. The characters are so beautifully drawn. And you get sucked into their stories. And it's it it's wonderful. It really is. You really, really get taken out of yourself uh, to listen to this story and to see these there's essentially, six, five or six characters in a real crisis.
0: And for those of you just joining us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on eighty-eight point nine FM, streaming in uh, uh, casting rooms around the world on kuci dot org. My guest is guest director Gavin Cameron Webb, who's going to be presenting starting Saturday this week and in the longer weekend following weekend, directing Gen- Angels of. I'm sorry, Angels in America here at UCI at the the uh, Cone Theater. And as we're talking about how we get sucked in with the characters, I'd like to ask you as a director, first dealing with your actors, and then we'll talk about the audience uh, managing this, his uncanny shift in tone be- and the overlay of tones between drama and comedy how do you work with your actors to strike those pitches, Gavin?
3: Oh, I think um I think actually uh Claudia that's fairly easy because really? uh, yeah, You're giving because that away. Our, our whole lives are funny and and dramatic all at the same time all at once. It's just like life. Okay. We have we have days with, that are dramatic and they have bright uh shards of comedy in them and vice versa.
0: Well, I guess it's, I can admit that a funeral <laughs> a funeral I went to had that interplay with it last Saturday, and we know that in other situations like that. But uh, I don't know. Do you, uh, from your experience, seeing it presented before, and what how you're directing these actors, that does the audience give themselves permission to laugh at the comedic lines because they know it's not a comedy they're watching?
3: Well, um, we haven't really had an audience yet, so I can't really answer that question. But, but in the audiences you've been with. So. <laughs> right. That they, that they do, um, and uh, uh, yes, please. Everyone needs to feel, uh, and the laughter, of course, is there to release a lot of the tension. Uh, and and if we didn't laugh at some things, we'd we'd be sort of shooting ourselves. So we, we essentially have to laugh.
0: So it is part a a. Th- Theatric device that he is intentionally Using as comic relief throughout?
3: Oh, I think so, and I think that's a very human Trait, I think we all possess that You know, tell a joke to, uh, to Ward off the really the Really, really bad times uh, The other thing that I admire about Kushner's writing in this particular piece Is, is his intense theatricality uh, Where he will uh, Split scenes but In two different locations And in two different times And sometimes meld them Oh, it's seamless. Um, it is seamless, and and it works the way your imagination works, which is utterly brilliant and beautifully uh, done for the stage. Because it 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 requires an audience. Well, it uses the audience's imagination in a way that only theater can do, and no other medium can do. Which is what is so wonderful about directing this sort of material on the stage.
0: I'm glad you brought up that feature because I, I, I had a chance to see the. The HBO series, and I think they—they, yeah, yeah. okay, good. I'm glad you feel that way. That was my impression, and uh, they were devoted to the that seamlessness from one setting of characters into the next setting. Was uh, it was like walking in from one room in the house to the next room in the theater. It was uncanny. Well, do you want? Well, we're here together this morning. Do you want to say anything about the audience advisories? Some people might have seen them in uh, the brochure that's been presented by the School of the Arts. Is there anything to say about that?
3: Well, certainly there's things to say about that. There is uh, brief nudity. There is uh, there's a lot of profanity. So it's certainly not a, 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 a family entertainment, put it that way. It is, it is an adult-themed entertainment, and uh, you have everything. You have nudity. You have sex. You have profanity. But so, so you know,
0: if it's not gratuitous, sometimes that no, makes not, not makes your audience a little more broad, a little more forgiving. It's just uh, for those. If it's a if it's I a fast tw-
3: Yeah, I wouldn't have said at all that it was gratuitous. I mean, uh, every act is is thoroughly motivated, and it all makes a cogent sense to me, at any rate.
0: So it's just. For people to be posted on that, it doesn't limit them. not limit need to them.
3: know going in that it's not going to be um, a farce. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: not a farce. Right. Well, we're um, wanting to make sure everybody knows that the performances start Saturday night, January 25th, the 30th, and the February 1st. That's at 8 o'clock. And January 26th, that's a little earlier, at 7.30. The matinees are January 26th, February 1st, and 2nd and for those of you holding the first matinee tickets um on January 26th you will get to join the creative team and the cast for a post performance talk back i would yeah. kill to go to to hear what that has to be all about cuz then they have uh Will have had two performances under their belt, sort of a nighttime, daytime audience. So there, there may be already a lot to say. They could probably do that performance talk back after performance talk right now, but they'll have oh, more they to could, say yes. because they'll they'll get that reaction. And so, are right. you talking to your actors about um, how to deal with the, uh, I guess, hesitant laughter or um, the or guffaws or um, the, I mean, are are you? or the Not point really. is for I'm, them I'm to trans-
3: the 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 actors will take the audience in their stride because i mean part of the thing is that the theater the robert cohen theater where the production is being presented is a very intimate space which suits the play beautifully i think there are only 80 seats in the theater you're going to be very very close to the action of the play um almost in where well, you are going to be in the same room with the characters in the play so it's going to be an exceptional experience and one that you can't really uh, produce in any other in any other space. So I'm delighted we're doing it in this in this performance, um, and the audience will, because of the nature, the theatrical nature of the production, be embraced in how the whole performance goes. The audience is part of the performance; they're not just onlookers. They are part of the performance. So, and each audience will be different slightly. And that will change how the actors are. That always happens.
0: So I'm sure after you're investing so much, you'll probably feel like I'd love to take this on a tour and take it to different audiences around the country. But that you don't get to do in projects like this. That's a downside (laughs) of this job description. (laughs) Yeah, it goes away. So it's, uh, as Gavin uh, Cameron-Webb mentioned, that this is, a, it's a small theater, so um, you'll want to find out from the box office. I know there's some tickets left, so um, the, the number is 949 uci 2787 or there's the, the website arts.uci.edu forward slash tickets to arrange for those. So that's, that's very important. So um, I guess uh, I just want to say with your time at a real premium at open night it's just really a a privilege to have you here you, you seem so collected with the because i think isn't it the way it is that each dress rehearsal this close gets exponentially more important to pull everything together
3: well yes we are in the in the stage now where we're pulling everything we're adding clothes tonight so uh things are all or taking together. them off so uh, depending on the scene yes we're adding the sound and the lights and the scenery and all the props and the clothes come tonight and uh, the special effects. There are a couple of special effects in the play that uh, that we're working on. So, yeah. Some of those you might need. When s- everything comes together. Or exactly. That's exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. Those
0: special effects, you probably need some special permits, maybe, for some of yes, those. Yes,
3: we've, we've had to get special permits for a couple of things, yes.
0: And that's it? We're not... I, I asked a little bit about that, and I got a spoiler alert about that <laughs> yesterday from a, a colleague. So, uh, Thanks a lot, Eric, for making sure i was super titillated about uh, what we're in for. And so, I don't know. Do you think people ought to be getting more than one ticket for this, Gavin? Even though it's a small venue, and so not everybody's going to get to see this, but right. seeing it more than once wouldn't be a bad idea.
3: No, I don't suppose it would be. It wouldn't be a bad idea. I imagine it would be quite a different experience depending on the performance you went to. But and the audience, um, yes. yeah. Uh, as as you say, tickets are very limited. So. Right,
0: right, right. I know that just as we're just pairing this all the way down, it's a pity that. Not everybody gets a chance to live in the southeast where I remember the callback response sort of enlivens one's own role as a member of the audience. It's ever since I put in some time in North Carolina and in northern Florida, I learned how the audience is, uh, it's incumbent of them to participate audibly in theater and in churches. And it sort of loosened you up. And some people don't know what to do about that. But I'm so grateful for that exposure I had.
3: Yeah. Well, yes. Well, that uh, audience is culturally very different, depending on where you're watching them, and uh, yeah, depending you're watching plays in Europe, you're watching plays in the West of America, East of America, um, or South America. Yeah, they're going to be different depending on the culture that the theater, theater is in.
0: Absolutely. I want to thank you, Gavin, Cameron Webb, for setting aside such valuable time today uh, to bring us your Eddie production you're doing with Angels in America written by Tony Kushner. I wish you all the luck and thanks again for the time today. Oh, not
3: at all. Pleasure to be here and I hope everybody really enjoys the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you everybody for listening.